Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Zach. And I'm Melissa. And we are very excited to have Timothy Wright joining us here today. Since his time at Claremont McKenna College, where he played varsity football for four years and graduated in 1977 with a dual degree in economics and political science, Tim has been exceptional. At the UCLA School of Law, he became the first African-American Chief Justice of the UCLA Moot Court Honors Program and was chosen to deliver the commencement address at the 1983 UCLA Law School graduation. At some point in his long career, Timothy, Tim worked in every branch of the United States government and worked for Presidents H.W. Bush, Clinton, and W. Bush. In addition to his work domestically, he has also served as a legal participant on the UN Council for Namibia and was an international election monitor for South Africa's first free elections in 1994. Thank you so much for joining us here, Tim. Uh, one of the most interesting questions and kind of the question that we usually start out with is a question about inflection points, either in your personal life or your career, that sort of changed your trajectory um, as you went through life. And we were wondering if you could share some of those with us. Sure. I think maybe, and I'm not sure where my first inflection point was, but I, I, it does go back to even before I came to Claremont. And having grown up in the city of Compton, having uh, been a witness to the uh, uh, onslaught of the uh, gangs, uh, particularly the uh, Crips uh, uh, in Compton, how those have impacted my life. Um, you know, um, I was part of a group that did fight back, that wanted to preserve the sanctity of high school as uh, everybody else had enjoyed that, and the sanctity of their community. So we resisted having the gangs in our community. But as a result of that, we were targeted. I was shot and stabbed before when I was in the 11th grade. I had a contract on my life uh, uh, by the Crips. I had to protect myself. And so uh, um, I've seen people uh, around me uh, who've died as a result of this violence. So when you talk about an inflection point in one's life, uh, it's you know just being able to have life, I think, uh, when it was so quickly, uh, so able to be quickly removed, uh, for me, is an inflection point. And it's certainly, uh, you know, you respect uh, uh, the importance of life and the things that you can do with it. But that was, you know, I, I always say that I grew up way fast, maybe too fast, uh, because of the environment that uh, I came out of. And, um, you know, so coming to Claremont was a very, another inflection point for me, if you will, because it was something I had to make sense of. It was something I had never seen before. You know, coming out of Compton into Claremont is like really a big step forward <laughs> or, or a step back, whatever you want to call it. It's a big step, no matter how you look at it. And so the notion of trying to organize my life around academics and, and so forth and so on and beginning to learn and understand what the world requires, uh, I think was an important uh, point for me. And finally, you know what, and it's probably about 20 of these different points, but you know what, going into Africa during apartheid South Africa and being a part of that uh, uh, and understanding the importance of trying to uh, uh, fight for freedom and fight for justice and those kind of things are also important parts. Now, you, your background is clearly very incredible. Um, 
how have you uh, kept the lessons that you learned in childhood through changing environments where maybe your life wasn't in danger um, or maybe circumstances have changed? How have those lessons from the childhood um, still motivate you or still affect you today? Well, you know, I, I, I want to answer that from the lens of an athlete because I've been an athlete most of my life. And so what that meant was training and practicing and uh, preparing uh, uh, for the game and engaging in the game. And so, you know, I approach it from the lens of an athlete uh, and understanding that preparation is key to success, that planning is key to success. So even when I was confronted with the difficulties of understanding a college-level curriculum and being able uh, uh, to hold my own with respect to that. It was about practicing, exercising, planning, and being able to do it. So those are things that have, uh, you know, uh, those are things that have kind of followed me, and they're a basic foundation uh, of what it is that I've made of. And uh, I believe that they have helped me at every step and at every level uh, of my life. I mean, they were also useful for me working in the White House, as well as uh, uh, negotiating South Africa's new constitution. I, I think that there's some fundamental things that uh, I have to employ at each and every step in terms of what I'm doing that ultimately allow me uh, to do what's necessary to try to survive and to succeed. I was hoping we could go a little bit more in depth about your time at Claremont. You said that that was the time that you sort of became a student and started um, like really engaging with the college curriculum. And I was wondering if there were professors who mentored you or if there was like a particular subject that you really clicked with or sort of what fostered that transition? Um, yes, it was that, but there was also dark times too. And I think that we encounter all of those things. Um, you know, when I first got here on campus, uh, there were certainly professors who wanted to see me succeed, but there were others who didn't. I was told that I didn't belong here uh, by professors, a professor whose name I won't mention uh, because I've grown to love him. But, um, I, and I was told that I didn't deserve to be here, that I shouldn't have been here, that I was an athlete and perhaps I should have went to Cal State LA and that I wouldn't pass his class, nor would I ever graduate. Well, you know what? I graduated with four degrees in two years and played football four years. And so, you know, I, I guess it's always good to have motivation. Uh, but, you know, uh, and, then it, and then there were political issues here, uh, as I'm sure there are now, because I've read about the stuff related to the diversity. You know, there are always those kind of things when you, uh, with minority populations and majority situations, and how do we make this stuff work? You know, it's really the ultimate of what is America about? You know, when are we ultimately going to deal with the issues that we have to deal with? W.D. Du Bois called it the color line issue. You know, Walter Rauschenbusch called it the social gospel. And, uh, you know, Niebuhr, uh, he calls it this class, uh, uh, you know, as we clash for power. And so, um, but maybe I've gotten a little bit off track here as I begin to, to ruminate on these things. But let me just say that being at Claremont introduced me into a world that I had not known, had not seen. 
it opened up the possibilities for what could be for me. So while I may not have appreciated it uh, uh, initially because of the dark side of it, you know, I was, uh, I, I remember working here uh, during the summer and uh, I was uh, ticketed and taken to jail and jumped on by nine police officers, white police officers uh, uh, in, uh, in Pomona and beat up and then charged with assault. And uh, ultimately they dropped the charges. But you know what? That has an indelible impact on one's psyche and who one is. You know what? I remember being picked up uh, at least once a week by the uh, 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 police uh, or the sheriff and uh, told that I was uh, picked up on a warrant. And then it turns out that the one that they're looking for is 5'3 and 160 pounds, and it wasn't me. Yeah. So I had to walk back to campus, right? And, and I remember my father, when he came out here to drop me off, I'm the first kid ever. I got seven siblings. I'm number six, and I was the first to go to college. And he drags me out here. We get stopped by the police on the way here just to get checked out. And I remember when I graduated, he brought his truck up here again. On the way out, we get stopped again. You know, I said, it's only fitting. And so when you think about your experiences, you know, there is a good, the bad, and the ugly. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's kind of dark, but it's also very bright. And uh, as the time went on, I really began to appreciate uh, uh, not only the experience at school, but what it taught me, the fundamentals it taught me, uh, but also some of the professors, too, because of them taking an interest in me and making sure that I was getting through this. And so, you know what, it's a bittersweet uh, kind of thing. Now and I'm really up on it, and I think that um, the opportunities that Claremont present, uh, the ability to transform, I think is really key and it's really important. Now, clearly race has been a, a huge part of your life, and I'd, I'd like to talk about your experience in South Africa where you worked on the Constitution, and you also helped um, lead to the release of Nelson Mandela. Um, what was it like, um, what are some stories of your time in South Africa when you were navigating the racial divide? How did you overcome those um, historic and deep-seated racial emotions? Well, for me, it all started here in Claremont. Um, when I wrote my senior thesis, I wrote it on Angola and the prospects of transformation of the economy. And, and the notion being that uh, in colonial uh, 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 economies, that the economy is extractive and it doesn't create the kind of value-added, wealth-producing impact that's done, for example, in our society where we have value-added uh, industries. And so the real key for them was how not to continue to operate that machinery, but to build and transform it into something that adds value to the vast amount of natural resources that were there. And that was a key to building up. And so I kind of looked at that concept and, you know, how could you do that if you weren't at Claremont? So it really come from, it came from my professors. It came from, and so that began when I began to think about Africa. The other thing, being in Claremont and watching the Asian community, particularly the Japanese community. And it's interesting because coming from California, uh, when we were little, we saw the Japanese being second-class citizens. 
particularly after uh, the war and the internment camps and so forth and so on. And, uh, you know, they were being treated even worse than blacks. And uh, when uh, Japan became an industrial power, everything changed. Uh, uh, and it changed in terms of Japanese uh, uh, citizens, U.S. citizens, were highly regarded. They were going to school. They were doing things. And so it was a whole different. And I saw that metamorphosis take place as a kid. And I thought about Africa. And I said, if only Africa could be free, perhaps the rest of us in the diaspora sure. might be free too. If we could create economies there, if we can grow as an industrial power in Africa, perhaps it would have an impact on me where I am. So what I'm saying is that those kind of thoughts that brought me to Africa actually began here based on my own observations that I saw. And, and it was particularly true of what I saw of the Japanese people, or U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, American citizens here. And so in terms of being in South Africa, I've had a couple of opportunities to make that trip. But what I began to do at Claremont and then later on at UCLA is that I got involved in what's called the divestment movement. At UCLA, when I was in the law school there, we became successful, the first university in the country to push for the divestment of funds uh, for those businesses that were doing business in South Africa and supporting the apartheid government. Mm -hmm. So that began the entry point for me is leading this divestment campaign or one of the people in the divestment campaign. From there, I, I you know, when I graduated from law school, I continued to work with the UN and the Committee Against Apartheid. I continued to work with the Free South Africa movement around the country. So it kept me close, and then those opportunities gave me an opportunity to go to South Africa, where I began to see firsthand during apartheid what was actually taking place. And, uh, and then I worked on a bunch of legal matters pertaining to that, and so, in terms of your question, what did I see? It's interesting because what I saw were people that were willing to make a change. They knew that apartheid was bad. Now, you know, I, I was there. Both, both white and black people. Both white and black people, absolutely. And see, the divestment movement forced the banks, forced the mining companies who were being starved for capital, mm -hmm. of bringing the government to the table to negotiate a truth. Mm -hmm. Other than that, everybody thought it would be a bloody revolution, they, at the, uh, uh, that they would never give up South Africa. But what we saw was that uh, we saw that because of these economic conditions, they had to come to the table and talk. When they came to the table and talk, I saw the vestiges of apartheid that were like 800-pound gorillas on the people's back. And while they didn't want to give up power, uh, they were fearful about, you know, they were full of trepidation about what would occur as they gave up power. Uh, um, but they also knew that what they were doing was not good stuff in terms of apartheid. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It almost reminds me of America today and what I've just seen with Trump. You know what? I think that what's occurred is that, uh, you know, we're looking at a change in uh, uh, the demographics in this country. In another 15 years, it'll be a minority-minority country, minority-majority country. And I think that that's, people are reacting to that. 
And I see the same fear and trepidation I saw in South Africa amongst the whites I see here. And I think that's the reason why we have a Trump with us today. And I'm not suggesting that South Africa is out of the woods yet in terms of its experiment, but I'm saying it has to confront these issues just like we have to confront the issues. W.D. Du Bois a long time ago said the biggest problem they had back then was the color line. It's the same problem we have today, except it's multiple colors. Mm -hmm. And But I think that if we are going to go forward as a people, if we're going to somehow live into this notion of American exceptionalism, and it's not just American, it has to be people exceptionalism. But if we're going to leave, leave into that, that we have an opportunity. I know this is far afield from the question that you asked me about South Africa, but I hope you can kind of grasp in my discussion of this where we're going and why it was important that South Africa ultimately free itself. Thank you so much. We are almost out of time, but we like to end with kind of the same question we ask across every podcast. And that question is, what is your personal definition of success? How would you define sex or success for um, students? And how would you define success kind of looking forward into the future, maybe for America, given what you've been uh, talking about? You know, I guess my personal definition of success is making a difference to the furtherance of people, uh, uh, and not just in this country, but around the world. I think there's a lot of work to be done. You know, some of us take success to be wealth. I think that that's really a fleeting thing. Uh, what I take success to be is how it is that we treat one another, how it is that we express a love for each other that, uh, uh, that has an impact on how, how we relate to each other and how all of us are able to move forward. I don't think we can leave anyone behind. And so I think the work that we do to lift each other up is how I would define the success. Uh, you know what? We all would love to have lots of money, and that's a good thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. As I used to tell people, I'm not against people making money. I'm against people who are starving and poor. And I think that's how I would define success are my efforts to make that difference. Great. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Um, but thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. And to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.